Hey guys, welcome to episode number 7 of the Gandhiji's autobiography. Here we go. There were comparatively few Indian students in England 40 years ago. It was a practice with them to affect the bachelor even though they might be married. School or college students in England are all, all, all bachelors, Stu studies being regarded as incompatible with married life. We had that tradition in the good old, good old days, a student then being invariably known as a brahmachari. But in those days, but in these days, we have child marriages, a thing practically unknown in England. Indian youths in England therefore felt ashamed to confess that they were married. There was also another reason for this ambling, namely that in the event of the fact being known, it would be impossible for the young ma men to go about or flirt with the young girls of the family in which they lived. The flirting was more or less innocent. Parents even encouraged it and that sort of association between young men and young women may even be a necessity there in view of the fact that every young man has to choose his mate. If however Indian youths on arrival in England indulge in these relations quite natural for English youths, the result is likely to be disastrous, as has often been found. I saw that our youths had succumbed to the temptation and chosen a life of antruth for the sake of companionship, which however innocent in the case of English youths were for them undesirable. I caught, I too caught the the I did not hesitate to pass myself off as a bachelor though I was married and the father of a son. But I was none the happier for being a dissembler. Only my reserve and reticence saved me from going into deeper waters. If I did not talk, no girl would think it worth her while to enter into conversation with me or to go out with me. My, co my cowardice was on a par with my reserve. It was customary in families like the one I was staying at Rentner for the daughter of the landlady to take, take out guests for a walk. My landlady's daughter took me one day to the lovely hills round Ventnor. I was no slow, slow walker, but my companion walked even faster, dragging me after her and chattering all the while. I responded to her chatter sometimes with a, with a whispered yes or no, and at the most, yes, how beautiful, just flying like a bird while I was wondering when I should get back home. We thus reached the top of a hill 
How to get down again was the question. In spite of a high-heeled boots, this sprightly young lady of 25 darted down the hill like an arrow. I was shamed. I was ashamed and I was struggling to get down. She stood at the foot smiling and cheering me and offering to come and drag me. How could I be so chicken-hearted? With the great difficulty and crawling at intervals, I somehow managed to scramble to the bottom. She loudly laughed, bravo, and shamed me all the more, as well as she might. But I could not escape scathless everywhere, for God wanted me to get rid for God wanted to rid me of the canker of Antrud. I once went to Brighton, another watering place like Ventnor. This was before the Ventnor visit. I met an old widow of moderate means at the hotel. This was my first year in, in England. The courses on the menu were all described in French, which I did not understand. I sat at the same table as the old lady. She saw that I was a stranger and puzzled and immediately came to my aid. You seem to have, you seem to be a stranger, she said, and you look perplexed. Why have, why haven't you ordered anything?
So where was I? Yes. You seem to be a stranger and and you look perplexed. Why haven't you ordered anything? I was spelling to the menu and preparing to ascertain the in ingredients of the courses from the waiter. When the good lady thus intervened, I thanked her and explaining my difficulty, told her that I was I was at a loss to know which of the courses were vegetarian, and I and as I don't understand French, let me help you," she said. "I shall explain the card to you and show you what you may eat." I gratefully availed myself of her help. This was the beginning of an acquaintance that ripened into friendship and was kept up all through my stay in England and long after. She gave me her London address and invited me to dine at her house every Sunday. On special occasions, also she would invite me, help me to conquer my bashfulness, and introduce me to young ladies and draw me into conversation with them. Particularly marked out for those. For these conversations, for the young lady who stayed with her, and often we would be left entirely alone altogether. I found all this very trying at first. I could not start a conversation, nor could I indulge in any jokes. But she put me in the way. I began to learn, and in the course of time, looked forward to every Sunday and came to like the the conversations with a young friend. The old lady was on a spreading, was went on spreading her net wider every day. She felt interested in our meetings. Possibly, she had uh, her own plans about us. I was in a quandary. How I wished I had told the good lady that I was married. I said to myself, she would then have not thought of an engagement between us. Is it, however, never too late to mend? If I declare the truth, I might yet be saved more misery. With these thoughts on my mind, I wrote a letter to her, somewhat to this effect. Ever since we met at Brighton, you have been kind to me. <coughs> you have taken care of me, even as a mother of her son. You have also think you have also thought that I should get married. and with that view you have introduced been introducing me to young ladies rather than allow matters to go further i must confess to you that i have been unworthy of your affection i should have told you when i began my visits to you that i was married i knew that indian students in england disembowelled the fact of their marriage and i followed suit i now see that i should not have done so I must also add that I was married while yet a boy, and I am the father of a son. I am pained that I should have kept this knowledge from you for so long, but I am glad. God has now given me the courage to speak out the truth. Will you forgive me? I assure you, I have not taken improper liberties with the young lady. You are good enough to introduce to me. I knew my limits. You, not knowing that I was married, naturally desired that we should be engaged, in order that things should not go beyond the present state. I must tell you the truth. If, on receipt of this, 
you feel that I have been unworthy of your hospitality, I assure you that I shall not take this amiss. You have laid me under an everlasting debt of gratitude by your kindness to regard me as worthy of your hospitality, which I will spare no pains to deserve. I shall naturally be happy and counted for a further token of your kindness. Let the reader know that I could not have written such a letter in a moment, but I must have drafted and redrafted it many times over. But it lifted a burden that was weighing on, weighing me down. Almost by return post came a reply somewhat as follows. I have your frank letter. We were both glad and had a hearty laugh over it. Unworth, the untruth you say have been, you have been a guilty is you have been guilty of his pardonable. But it is, it, is a, it is well that you have acquainted us with the real state of things. My invitation still stands and we shall certainly expect you next Sunday and looking forward to hearing about your child marriage and the pleasure of laughing at your expense. Need I assure you that our friendship is not in the least affected by this incident? I thus purged myself of the can- canker of untruth and I never thenceforward hesitated to talk of my married state wherever necessary. Towards the end of my second year in England, I came across two theosophists, brothers and both unmarried. They talked to me about the Bhagavad Gita. They were reading Sir Edwin Arnold's translation, the song Celestial, and they invited me to read the original with them. I felt ashamed as I read as I read the divine poem poet poem neither in Sanskrit nor in Gujarati. I was con- I was constrained to tell them that I had not read the Gita but that I would gladly read it with them and that though my knowledge of Sanskrit was meagre, still I hoped to be able to understand the original to an extent of telling where the translation failed to bring out the meaning. I began reading the Gita with them, the verses in the second chapter. If one ponders on objects of the senses, there springs attraction. From attraction grows desire, desires flame into fierce passion, passion breeds recklessness, and then the memory, all betrayed, lets noble purpose go and saps the mind, till purpose, mind, and man are all undone. It made a deep impression on my mind, and they still ring in my ears. The book struck me as one of the and one of priceless worth the impression has ever since been growing on me with the result that i regard it today as the book par excellence for the knowledge of truth it has afforded me invaluable help in my moments of gloom 
I have read almost all the English translations of it and I regard Sir Edwin Arnold's as the best. He has been faithful to the text and yet it doesn't look like reading a translation. Though I read the Gita with these friends, I cannot pretend to have studied it then. It was only after some years that it became a book of daily reading. The brothers also recommended The Lights of Asia by Sir Edwin Arnold, whom I knew till then as the author of only the song Celestial, and I read it with even greater interest than I did the Bhagavad Gita. Once I began it, I could not leave off. They also took me to one occasion on one occasion to Madame Blavatsky Lodge and introduced me to Madame Blavatsky and Mrs. Besant. The latter had just joined the Theosophical the Theosophical Society and I was follow and I was following her with great interest the controversy about her conversion. The friends had advised me to join the society, but I politely declined, saying, with my meager knowledge of my own religion, I do not want to belong to any religious body. I recalling, I recalled having read at the brother's instance Madame Blavitsky's Key to Theosophy. This book stimulated in me the desire to read books on Hinduism and and disabused me of the notion fostered by the missionaries that Hinduism was rife with superstition. About the same time, I met a good Christian from Manchester in a vegetarian boarding house. He talked to me about Christianity. I narrated him my Rajkot recollections. He was pained to hear them. He said, I am a vegetarian. I do not drink. Many Christians are meat eaters and drink, no doubt. But neither meat eating nor drinking is enjoyed in the scripture. Do please read the Bible. I accepted his advice and he got me a copy. I have a faint recollection that himself used to sell copies of the Bible and I purchased from him an edition containing maps, concordance and other aids. I began reading it, but I could not possibly read through the Old Testament. I read the book of Genesis. The chapters that followed invariably sent me to sleep. But just for being able to say that I had read it, I plodded through the other books with much difficulty and without the least interest or understanding. I disliked reading the book of Numbers, but the New Testament produced a, depression, a, a different impression, especially the Sermon on the Mount, which went straight to my heart. I compared it with Gita. The, the verses, But I say unto you, that you resist not evil. Whosoever shall smite these on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if any man take away the coat, let him have the cloak too. Delighted me beyond measure and put me in my mind the shamal bhats for a bowl of water, give a goodly meal, etc. My young mind 
tried to unify the teachings of the Gita, the lights of Asia and the Sermon on the Mount, that renunciation was the highest form of religion appealed to me greatly. This reading whetted my appetite, my appetite for studying the lives of other religious teachers. A friend recommended Carol's Carlyle's Heroes and Hero Worship. I read the chapter on the hero as a prophet and learned of the prophet's greatness and bravery and austere living. Beyond this acquaintance with religion, I could not go at the moment as reading for the examination left me scarcely any time for outside subjects. But I took mental note of the fact that I should read more religious books and acquaint myself with all the principal religions. And how could I help knowing something of atheism too? Every Indian knew Bradlaugh's name and his so-called atheism. I read some books about it, the name of which I forget. It had no effect on me, for I had already crossed the Sahara of atheism. Mrs. Basant, who was then very much in the limelight, had turned to theism from atheism. And the fact also strengthened my aversion to atheism. I had read her book, How I Became a Theosophist. It was about this time that Bradlaugh died. He was, he was buried in the walking cemetery. I attended the funeral as I believe every Indian residing in London did. A few clergymen also were present to do him his last honours. On our way back from the funeral, we had to wait at the station for our train. A champion atheist from the crowd heckled one of the clergymen. Well, sir, you believe in the existence of God? I do, said the good man in, in low tone. You also agree that the circumference of the earth is 28,000 miles, don't you? said the atheist with a smile of self-assurance. Indeed, pray tell me then the size of your God and where he may be. Well, if we, if we but knew, he resides in the heart of bo us both. Now, now, don't take me as a child, said the champion with a triumphant look at us. The clergyman assumed a humble silence. This talk still further increased my prejudice against atheism. Thank you very much for your time.